Hi, and welcome back. We are your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I'm Lexi. And you are listening to Wild About Conservation. If you're new here, welcome. This is the podcast where we explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests. And this season focuses on the coastal environment. From rivers through to estuaries and back out to our ocean, we have it all this season. Today we are speaking with Hannah Grist. Hannah is currently a lecturer in social environmental systems at the Scottish Rural College and has a background in coastal ecology, public engagement and citizen science. In this episode, we explore the world of rocky shore ecology, defining what the intertidal zone is, the challenges and the drama for species living there, and also how you, our listeners, can get out on the rocky shore and explore. We also dive into Hannah's citizen science project work, discussing the impact of the empowerment of communities through support, access to ocean-based education and training. We specifically chat about the importance of this type of work with a focus on capturing our coast project or co-host as our example. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. Please remember to leave a review, get in touch on social media, and if you would like to support us as creators, we do have a Patreon. Check out all of the links in the show notes on our website or the description down below. So sit back and enjoy. Hi, thank you for chatting to us today. Firstly, can you tell us your name, your pronouns and the country that you're based in. Hi, really nice to see you. Yeah, my name is Hannah Grist. Um, I'm a she, her, and uh, I'm based in Scotland. Wonderful. Well, welcome, Hannah. Thank you for introducing yourself. Um, we're really, really looking forward to chatting to you today. But before we do, could you give us a quick overview about what it is that you do and introduce your key topic in conservation? Right. Thank you. That's a big question. Um, so I am a new uh, lecturer in socio-environmental systems at SRUC. Um, but before that, I've worked in lots of different organisations. And my main kind of area of conservation is pretty much coastal zones. So any species that live along or, or around our coastlines. Nice. Well, we're super excited to be chatting to you today, Hannah. And congrats on now being a lecturer and doing that part of your life and your work. And I'm sure we're going to talk about lots of other pieces on the way. But before we do that and get into all things intertidal and coastal, we have a short game, which is meant to settle you in, keep you on your toes. So I'm hoping you're happy to play. Just a few quick fire questions. So first up, what's something you're grateful for today? Well, I'm grateful for the fact that it was supposed to be raining and currently isn't, um, which means I'm going to have a nice campfire tonight and get outside, which is always nice. Oh, that sounds lush, and I hope not many midges. <laughs> you know, I live in the central belt, so midges are not a huge problem here. So, yeah, that is something else I'm very grateful for, actually. Yeah, I'd be pretty grateful for that, too. Um, talking of, would you rather be a dung beetle, a mayfly, or a cockroach? Oh, cockroach, definitely. Those guys are, like, indestructible heroes. <laughs> I think we should rebrand cockroach as heroes. I like that. <laughs> um, and finally, if you had to pick one life skill, or talent, or trick, um, what would it be that you would say is your best life skill? I guess I'm pretty unflappable. So other people tend to panic and have like, you know, huge emotional swings. And I'm just like, smooth sailing through life. Um, which means that, uh, yeah, as soon as it makes things a little bit easier to be able to just be the one in the middle that goes, yeah, it's totally fine, I'll sort it. That sounds like a brilliant life skill, to be fair. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'd like to think I'm unflappable. And then sometimes I'm absolutely not. <laughs> um, right, we have two more questions for you before we get into the depths of the podcast. Um, firstly, we would like to know, what is your favourite sustainable swap? Wow, well, I guess like a lot of people, we've been trying to do a lot over the past few years. Um, but relatively recently, I think over lockdown, we've um, tried to swap everything to a planet-friendly diet. So I'm not sure you saw this paper come out like a couple of years ago about how you can uh, eat, eat for the planet. Um, mm. And my wife is a master chef. So she has switched all our stuff to, uh, the well, a, a more sustainable option as we started eating, um, which has actually been like a pretty big lifestyle shift wow. from like what it was. But it's, yeah, it's become an amazing part of our lives. That sounds like an, a really exciting challenge to embark on, actually. I'd be quite interested in knowing some of the things that you cook with and how you decide what you're doing. But that's a completely different topic um, <laughs> for today. My last question for you before we actually start talking about, you know, you 
what we always ask our guests how they get wild about conservation these can range from just getting outside to reading books about wildlife to literally anything that you do so Hannah how do you get wild um I guess probably a, a lot of those things like a lot of people you'll speak to but um my favorite thing is we go camping a lot so we are spend a lot of time in the hills of Scotland uh walking you know we, we kind of Monroe bag things like that I've got a spaniel so he needs to be walked at least seven hours a day doesn't always get it but that would be his preference um and so we do that and we try and take part in some cool citizen science projects while we do it so looking for mountain hares or upland birds so that feels like we can get out and do what we want to do uh but also feel like we're doing a little bit of conservation along the way which is amazing I love that mix of things there of like you know getting out and doing like your recreational things but still adding some stuff in there as well I um I've got the seek app on my phone from he's from my naturalist and I introduced my niece to it the other day who is quite city dwelling um and I was like look trees I was like let's ID these trees I was like my ID is not great so this is good for me I can get off her enthusiasm and she literally she ran off with my phone she's like what's this what's this what's this and I was like that's the same tree do you remember what it was it was just the sweetest but it was just those moments that are like that experience you can see like really going in for someone and yeah so Hannah what actually got you into conservation in the first place you've spoken about all of these you know you've worked lots of different places and we'll go into that in a minute but what was that thing that got you into conservation? Uh, So I think when I was a kid I was um, enjoyed being outside nature like a lot of children like you're saying um and I remember my granddad giving me his old pair of binoculars and we used to go out bird watching. So, you know, I was always enjoying being in the natural world, but never occurred to me that that could be a job or something that you could actually do. And then when I was 14 or 15, we got the opportunity to do work experience. I'm not sure if that's something people still do particularly. Um, but one of the things I options I got to do was to go and work um, with what was English nature then, mm. now natural England. And go and work on conservation like a local nature reserve. So that included things like putting sheep to graze grass and monitoring biodiversity and all these things I'd never realised you could do as a job. It just completely blew my mind. I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be outside doing something important. Um, And ever since then, that's kind of where my mind has been. Like, this is what I'm aiming for throughout pretty much the rest of my life. That sounds amazing (laughs) to be able to have such a... I guess, world-changing work experience that you could then see a path and kind of work towards that. Because I think I had work experience around that age and I um, I stayed at school and did some modern foreign languages teaching-ish. You're not really <laughs> teaching at that age, are you? Um, and it was really helpful to help me decide that I didn't want to be a teacher. <laughs> so I'm ever so jealous when I hear that people are able to be like, oh, I did it. And it, it absolutely opened my world up. It just sounds incredible to me. I've got to interrupt you there because mine was at Booze. <laughs> <laughs> That's literal work experience. Like. Well, that was the only options we had. I wanted to go to like RSPCA or something or like something yeah. like that. But none of them insurance reasons where I lived would take. So it was like you've got this shop or uh, this shop and I was like I like nail art and they were like no I was like okay I'll go to boots then so (laughs) inspiring stuff (laughs) thrilling it was good but (laughs) it was good to get out of school I think is what we're learning whereas I didn't even get that chat no (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I've opened up some of a traumatic therapy session now having (laughs) it's okay since then I think Hannah and I have both been heavy volunteers and had a wealth of experience we've just got it in a different way I'm just very jealous you got that at like 14 50 it's fine we're fine (laughs) (laughs) um so you are now a lecturer and you've already mentioned that this is this is a new position but before we go into all of your job history and your path through the world can you tell us about your academic career yes so I guess from an academic perspective, um, I've had quite a, a straight line career. So I did a degree in biology at Oxford um, many years ago, and then I did a master's in ecology and environmental management. So again, just really focusing on on that um, conservation end. And then I went up to the University of Aberdeen and did a PhD on coastal seabirds. Um, and I, I've also done a postdoc and now I'm a lecturer. So, you know, as academics go, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty normal path. 
I actually didn't know you did seabirds um, before your PhD. So that's really interesting. I can see kind of where the, all the coastal links have come in again and again for all of those types of things. So like you said, the academic side was pretty linear, but um, I know that you've done lots of other things interwoven with that. So do you want to take us on a journey of kind of your, your career, I guess, and the jobs that you've had and, you know, the skills that you've used for those kind of work? Yeah, so I guess if you pull up my academics, then it looks um, pretty straight line. And then if you add in all the, everything else I've done around it, it starts to look a little bit more crazy, mainly because every time I've had a break, so I've always had a break between every degree or, or next step. And that's always involved doing something that I just found interesting or cool. So I've tried to do different jobs to see where my skills lie, what I'm interested in and how I can build up some experience. So um, my first job out of uni was actually working for Save the Rhino International which is a charity based in London that works to fundraise and put uh, money overseas, obviously, to, for rhino conservation. Um, and that was an amazing introduction because it was a very it was a very focused job on getting you experience. Mm. So I did some fundraising, but I also got to go over to Namibia and work on rhino conservation in person, um, kind of watching, helping people track rhinos out there, kind of helping, uh, following them, tracking rhinos largely. Um, my rhino tracking skills are not top notch, <laughs> it turns out. Um, so that that kind of thing was a really fantastic introduction to to maybe all the different ways you can get involved in conservation because it's not all about just being in the field I guess it was all these other aspects all the money and the education and the science that feeds into conservation and what it needs and as I've kind of grown through my career um, and done things like my PhD I think I really realized that doing just pure scientific research wasn't for me uh, which is, you know, a lot of people feel pressured to kind of go towards that. I think if you're doing an academic mm. career, that's very much you're going to have a PhD and, and do research. Um, but I've always been much more interested in what difference that makes on the ground. So it's not just about, you know, an answer to a, a scientific question, which can be fascinating and can be interesting and, and relevant, but uh, pretty much how we apply it. And I think you know, we're all feeling the pressure of, of a biodiversity crisis, of a climate crisis. And it always felt to me that um, just doing pure research in that never felt like enough, never felt like enough of a contribution. Yeah. Um, so over time, I've become really interested in pretty much how people can relate and engage to science. So how we can create science, how we use it, um, how we can apply it to our current problems. And then now I work in that that interface of trying to take science and find the relevance and see how we can work together with people to, to apply it to the problems that exist today. I adore that and I completely understand what you're saying the research has such an important place in the world because they do need answering Absolutely. even but I agree with you in the practical application feels a lot more tangible yeah and it's really nice to see the boots on the ground conservation the changes the you know tracking the rhinos is quite is quite nice or following tracking rhinos that sounds incredible that sounds like some incredible experience so from all of that how did you come to work on rocky shore ecology these coastal zones right so this is um I always feel a little bit of a fraud because people refer to me as a marine ecologist and <laughs> when I went and did my PhD I was interested in, in seabirds. I've always been interested in birds. Um, and I very much did coastal ecology because I worked on European shags. So they are they are only coastal species. They don't go out to the open ocean um, and they don't really come inland. So I always thought, you know, I did biology. I can just do marine biology. That's just like a damper version of what I know. And then when I started <laughs> doing kind of doing marine stuff, um, people were like, oh, you don't have a marine biology degree. Like, how did you get in here? And I was like, well, it's all animals like I you know I never realized that I was making such an exciting switch um but uh the way I kind of made that transition was that during my PhD I started doing some citizen science so mm -hmm. I started getting involved in how we engage people in, in kind of undertaking scientific research and that really clicked with me because that really kind of walked that boundary between the scientific research and how people can kind of create and use it. Um, so I started doing a postdoc, which was on citizen science. And that happened to be in Rocky Shore, which I, was something I've always found exciting. Um, I did Rocky Shore ecology for my A-levels and my degree, like as, as little projects and things like that. And I always enjoyed it. Um, but but kind of that citizen science link allowed me to make the shift from being a terrestrial biologist to a, a marine biologist without anyone really noticing that I'd done it. So <laughs> don't tell anyone, will you? <laughs> Absolutely not. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I love that though because I think it's well my my degree was marine biology zoology and what that made me realize once I actually did my like when I started to do some of the later modules or my masters with stuff like ocean processes if you do the biology focus one it just doesn't get covered it gets completely blanked over and I was like okay so all of that stuff like you go out you seek the knowledge and you self-teach and I think that is one of like the most useful skills anyone can develop is critical thinking and being able to kind of go and find information or seek the person to teach you because it's not everything that you can self-teach so yeah I like how you not that we'll tell anyone (laughs) uh snuck snuck over um and you hear that a lot I think with PhD students anyway so it happens quite a lot um so you also and you've touched on this quite a few times about you know the citizen science and getting people engaged and taking the, the love for taking that science and figuring out how it can be made relevant or apply to problems or to people and to get people excited about that um so you mentioned earlier lots of different things in the engagement could you take us through a bit of how you've actually done that and maybe some of the transferable skills has it always been birds or rocky shore or has it been other things as well um no i, I think you made a, a really nice point there about learning things so every kind of job interview I've had because I've just always found something that's exciting uh they've always said oh you know you might have to learn some some new things coming into this job and I'm like well that's Mm. pretty much all I've done all the time is just reteach myself a new skill set I guess um and I think that's I mean a that keeps me really interested in what I'm doing um and kind of keeps that base broad but also I think like people should be doing that. We talk a lot more about interdisciplinary skills and transferable skills. And, you know, you should be being able to move and not just follow this really solid path of, I know this tiny thing and I'm going to keep there forever because how boring is that as a, as a thing? Um, so, yeah, the kind of public engagement, um, working with people side of it has has been something that's, that's kind of worked all the way through my career. Um, probably because I... I just really like working with people and I like science. I like seeing people engaging with it. I think it's an amazing feeling. I love teaching particularly and just kind of taking people on that journey from maybe not knowing or understanding something to knowing or understanding it and seeing that light bulb moment when they realize what's exciting and cool about it. So I've done a lot of, a lot of this kind of work. Um, I worked for the Edinburgh Science Festival for a little while. Mm. So that involved creating events and, and running workshops with kids or, or adults and kind of getting them involved in that work. Um, I also did teach for a while for the RSPB, which is outdoor learning, um, which is amazing because if you can be in a park with like 30, 13 year olds for two hours in the rain and still not be phased by life, it's like, it's amazing character building training. Nothing will scare you ever again if you can survive that, I think is my my message there. Um, or just two 13-year-olds. <laughs> just two 13 year any number of them. Once you get above five, it doesn't matter anyway. The fear is there. So. I just, you know, I, I, I think being able to do this kind of outreach and engagement has not only given me, um, you know, a huge amount of job satisfaction, but I've met some amazing people. I've had some great opportunities. Um, I once uh, did a break dance routine dressed as a blue tit on Buchanan Street in Glasgow. And it's not very often that you get to say you do that. Um, So, you know, all these kind of things mean that uh, I've learned a lot from other people and had all these experiences. And I think that brings a lot of skills to every new job I do. Um, Maybe not the break dancing. The break dancing is not a skill I have, (laughs) apparently, (laughs) I've learned. But that's good too. It's important to learn something about yourself and where your boundaries lie. So no more breakdancing in the future? Not in public, most definitely. Mm. Also, I'm now 35 and I feel like breakdancing would literally be break dancing, which, yeah, I'm not not down with that. Yeah, just when you were saying that about education, it always reminds me of that quote, the day I stop learning is the day I start dying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very true. We're just we should be constantly striving to learn new things because if not, where's where's the joy in life? If you think you know it all, absolutely, you yeah. definitely do not. Um, so, Rocky Shore Ecology as a as a topic. Um, let's start at the basics. What is the intertidal zone? Yeah, well, I guess super simply, the intertidal zone is that area of the the shoreline, the coastline, and that could be any kind of type of coast that exists between the high tide mark, so the very highest point that the water comes in, and the low tide mark. 
So in a lot of places that is a that can be a very small area, a bit of sand or beach or, or rock. Um, in some places you get huge, you know, huge swathes of sandy beach. Um, but it's it's never it's never a very big zone. Um, and it's something very unusual, I think, in this world because it's a boundary zone. So we don't mm-hmm. get many of those. That kind of boundary between the the land and the sea, possibly one of the biggest boundaries we have. So in biology we call that an ecotone. And it just it means that things that exist there, the biology that exists there, has to deal with these amazingly difficult changing environments. Uh, so it's actually a really cool area to be looking at and to to study um, and to, to look at the kind of conservation of. Cool. That was fabulous definition. Thank you for that. And <laughs> just kind of to zone in, zone in, sorry, that was unintentional. <laughs> to, to zone in, um, we're going to focus on Rocky Shore ecology today. Um, so could you actually define, even though clothes are the name, what is a rocky shore and are they all just one thing? Do you just get one type of rocky shore? Yeah, no, it's the kind of thing that sounds like it should be um, really obvious. And then, of course, there's a like so many things as a spectrum. Hmm. So quite often we see rocky shores and we think of um, these big areas of slab rock, so rock pools and the kind of thing you'd probably spend time on as a kid. But it can go down to areas with boulders, so big chunks of rock, um, areas with like cobbles, so smaller chunks of rock. So, I mean, basically all that sand is, is tiny, tiny bits of rock, <laughs> largely. Um, the way I normally think about the rocky shore is that if things can live on that rock, so if they can use it as a substrate, as a surface to exist on, so seaweeds or, or animals, then we probably count it as rocky shore. If you can live within it, like sand, then that becomes mm. a completely different type of environment and, and you get very different species existing in there. So yeah, you've already mentioned that the zone of an intertidal zone ranges from the lowest point of tide to the highest point of tide. So does is there any sort of zonation within a rocky shore or is it different to like a sandy shore? Yeah, so you tend to get... Um, really strong differences between that top and bottom of the shore and Mm. anyone that's done kind of a level or higher biology will probably have been taken out to see this and kind of understand what that means Um, but if you haven't what it essentially means that if you are a animal for example living at the top point of the shore you'll be spending vast majority of your time in the open air because the tide will only come up you know probably maximum once once twice a day um, and if you're living at that top point, because the tides shift up and down the shore, it might be weeks before you get covered by the tide again. Hmm. So in order to adapt to live there, you have to basically deal with being um, what we call immersed. So basically in the open air for the vast majority of the time. If you live on the bottom of the shore, the likelihood is you'll be doing the exact opposite. So you'll spend most of your time covered in water and not in the open air. So the way you have to exist, the way you're evolved and adapted to be in that environment is incredibly different. So we kind of loosely say that there's a, a high shore near the top, a mid shore, and then a low shore. Um, and there's a lot of really fun scientific arguments about uh, where you divide those things up. But ultimately, you will always see these these kind of patterns tend to happen just because the species differ in the adaptation so much between these areas. Thanks for painting that picture for us, Hannah. And I think off the back of that, if you had to kind of... I guess, characterise the key drivers that influence that zonation. You've already mentioned tides. What would they be? Yeah, that's a that's a really cool question um, <laughs> that we could probably do an entire podcast about. So I can't I can't talk about it a huge amount. But but tide is is one of the main drivers. So those kind of physical processes, um, and that's because of uh, desiccation at the top of the shore. So um, there are species that just can't survive being dried out. Some of the things like the squishy ones down the bottom uh, the shore there. Um, and then there are some species that uh, are very much adapted to that environment. The other major pressure we have beyond those kind of physical process of, of tide and, and air and temperature are competition. Mm. So one of the really th- cool things about studying biology on a rocky shore is that because it's such a small area and species are adapted to living in there, it's basically like one big fight for space, particularly. Because there isn't much space and a lot of things want to attach or hold on to things that attach. Um, And so there have been some cool experiments, some of them like 50, 60 years ago, that uh, remove 
um, species from rocky shore and then watch how things go or you or you exclude species from rocky shores and watch how other species move and you find out that that competition between species actually really defines the patterns that go up ashore um so that's i mean that's a that's really interesting to understand how biology works in these kind of environments but it also mm. means that if you lose species from certain shores you might see an entire change of the pattern that you're going to get there um i guess you can think about it like if you have deer pressure in woodlands you know you, you get this kind of different pressure this competition once you remove that the whole ecosystem can change just by removing one species so um yeah it's a, if you're ever interested it's a really cool topic and i would recommend reading into it and, and learning more that sounds really interesting so <laughs> you've mentioned a couple of um species there but none by name so what animals <laughs> or species or life can we find on a general rocky shore you don't have to pick a spe- specific one but if we're what we're, what are we looking for um well if I, i'm gonna totally go geeky here my favorite <laughs> my favorite yeah i'm just gonna own it um my favorite group are, are seaweeds because i think they're super underappreciated as a group um so you know a lot of people will recognize some of the big seaweeds like the the bladder rack or um channeled rack that you find on the seashore the big kind of brown ones but when you go lower down you can also find lots of very small delicate species so we actually have like a group of brown seaweeds a group of green seaweeds and a group of red seaweeds all existing on our rocky shores i remember when i first started doing rocky shore ecology properly my uh, boss at the time who's a brilliant intertidal ecologist took me out and said oh why don't you have a look and see how many seaweed species you can find on this shore and I thought right okay I knew I was having this job so I'd been learning a few before I got there and so I went out and I think I found you know I was like maybe 12 I was like I'm right I'm pretty pleased with myself about this like I'm basically a marine biologist Um, (laughs) and then just on the shore he took me and maybe got like 60 just in a and I was like, wow, okay, I have underestimated the level I need to work at here. And um, I think a lot of people do that because once you start getting down to that that depth, you realise that just the sheer beautiful diversity of these species. But also, you know, you, you get a lot of animals as well as the seaweed. So things you'd recognise like limpets, lots of shell species, mollusks, um, periwinkles, and then all the things that people get excited about. So a lot of our crab species, um, we have anemones, sea anemones, all the kind of things that you would find when you're a child and get excited about. We did find, we went on a field trip the other day with some students and um, we found velvet swimming crabs that actually exist in the intertidal. And they're amazing because they've got bright red eyes on little stalks and they're super vicious. Like they are really angry about other people. Um, and that's an amazing thing to see because this is a, you know, it's drama on a rocky shore. The whole thing is drama once you really get down there. Um, people think it's just boring seaweeds and it's totally not. You got me thinking there. We need like, a, yeah, a rocky shore, a rocky shore uh, would it be a sitcom drama type thing? So, yes, I what yes. that falls into. <laughs> um, I feel it should all... be a cartoon so that yeah. the characters can have personalities. That would make would more have sense. Many seaweed characters. I would appreciate that. That's all I ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, on the topic of velvet swimming crabs, we used to call them the evil crabs because they right. do, they are so vicious um, and they are kind of, they, they come for you. That is that is the crab you, you, you have to watch out for. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I love what you're saying, Hannah. And I think mm, it, something you mentioned earlier about, you know, going as a kid and I love seeing adults going out and rock pooling and, you know, people should just go and get excited that isn't just for kids and we've kind of ended up in this society a little bit where you see things like this and people go oh yeah no like I'll take my kids or I'll take I'll take the child that I can borrow from someone it's like no you go you enjoy that you have every right to enjoy that so I love your picking up and you can hear your passion (laughs) about it as well so on that note if someone was to go out and go and explore the rocky shore or maybe even think about rock pooling because I mean I know having done a lot of rocky shore field trips <laughs> rock pooling is a whole other thing and rock pools themselves have their own little ecology yeah. um what would you recommend for a trip to the rocky shore for an explore um I, I think you're you're totally right about what we've maybe given it to children and, and you mm. totally should take kids out but I don't understand why we've just thought that this is a thing that children should do like it's not suitable for adults which is crazy and in fact um we've started doing a lot more so I run like seaweed workshops where we take adults out 
Mm. Um, to learn about seaweeds and it's amazing because they often start off we have to kind of sell them I think because like this is a serious learning opportunity and I am not a serious learning leader Um, (laughs) so we start off you know it's all very like "Mm, seaweeds let's talk about it and by the end I've got people like you know feeling things in the shore and rubbing bits on their face and what you know it's all about I guess enjoyment like learning doesn't have to be deadly serious um so I guess that's my my first message is I guess take out a light heart like you by all means get some great identification books but you know you don't have to feel like this has to be a a serious trip some things can just be for the sheer joy of being out and learning and and understanding a bit more about it I guess the main things would be get some good books and I don't think you really need much on a rocky shore a lot of people say you know you take out buckets or anything but I think my advice would be to keep yourself as kind of low tech as possible. Mm. And particularly because you're trying to learn about it, but you're trying not to disturb it because that's, you know, pretty much the, the message of any kind of outdoor activity. So you're much better off just looking on the rocky shore, um, picking things up by all means, look at them. If you know, obviously if they come off, don't pull things off. Um, but then just putting them back exactly where they should be. And that's a really important message, I think, because everything I was saying about the rocky shore is that some things live at the bottom, some things live at the top. And if you change those around, they are super unhappy. Mm. So you're much better off just just learning in situ. And then it means that you can walk up and down this zone um, sections as well. And you can start to see the patterns emerging if you kind of keep your mind focused on, on that aspect of it. The other thing I would say about getting up to the rocky shore is that so much of the stuff is in the seaweed or under the seaweed or in rock pools or under rocks or whatever. So you need to you need to be prepared to guddle. Like this is a hands-on activity. This is not a gentle step back activity. Um, so I think, yeah, maybe you need your kind of kid mindset on that kind of get low to the ground, get hands in and just just enjoy it. Lay in the seaweed, hands in the pool. Yeah. But don't be respectful to the animals too. But that was a much shorter way of saying what I just <laughs> said. Yes. Oh no, it's okay. I was just thinking about when I go looking for nudibranchs in Imouth, and I'm just like, where are they? <laughs> oh, sea slugs! Sea slugs are amazing. You're absolutely right, guys. In the sense that we we've seen more recently over the past like few years, more and more adult-only events pop up mm. at museums and zoos and all these things, and they don't change a thing. I mean, they may add a bar in. <laughs> And it might be like after hours so that like more adults come. But all the public engagement activities, all the science fun things, everything's absolutely the same as for kids. There's just no kids there. So adults don't feel weird about taking it over. Whereas, yeah. you know what? My advice to any of any anybody that's asking me about it is just get involved. If it's for kids, it's perfectly fine for adults as well. Unless it's one of those teeny, teeny, tiny chairs and don't sit in that because that never, ever ends well for anybody. <laughs> been there a couple of times this is always the problem isn't it because they do i think because you feel awkward about doing children's things you just need it's not about the activity it's about removing the awkward mm. um so we did some edinburgh science festival events so every year at edinburgh science festival, city hall they put on all these kind of activities for schools these different workshops about like you know building cranes or building mars rovers or fake operating on people there's like a like an actual um proper fake cadaver you can remove things from and it's amazing and schools come and they love it and then quite often they have an adult night and that's honest to god the most fun one because the kids because they're so used to getting all these exciting activities anyway because that's what school is mm. um primary school uh they're like oh this is fun i'm playing with lego you know oh, this is fun i'm doing this because adults are like oh my god this is amazing because they just don't get to do this stuff anymore and so yeah you need need more of that more more adult focused kids activities yes yeah. or we just need to start calling them activities and forget that anything was ever made for kids ever except oh, for those that. teeny yes. tiny chairs let's revolutionize the world (laughs) life advice from Lexi don't sit in the teeny tiny chairs so other than when people go to the intertidal zone they get to see it they get to this amazing amazing outside space they may find some really cool creatures they will definitely see some awesome seaweed should we be worried about our intertidal zones and our rocky shores other than these natural pressures that you've talked about the tide coming in the dry air the moving shifting tides that we actually see all the time is, are there any other pressures that are natural or human-based? Yeah, I guess uh, rocky shores aren't separate from the rest of the world in that they face a lot of the same pressures that I think a lot of species or biodiversity faces at the moment. 
So climate change is uh, obviously globally affecting everything in our environment. And for rocky shores, that can mean temperature changes. So the sea temperature can change and it doesn't need to change that much for it to have quite a big impact on the species there. As I said, they're just so closely adapted to living in this particular environment that small changes can have quite a big impact. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing about climate change that seems to affect rocky shore species and something people maybe don't think about so much is ocean acidification. So the fact the ocean is becoming just ever so slightly more acidic because of the carbon um, dioxide that's being dissolved in there. And, you know, it's never something I think we notice particularly because it's not like you're going swimming and, and like melting. It's not that that much of a change. But if you are one of these species that build shells, so some of our really cool species, uh, periwinkles or mussels, Scotland's always very famous for mussels, oysters, things like that. They have to build their own shells. So most of them have like tiny little larval phases where they're all squidgy. And then they have to build their own shells and they do that using a chemical process. And if we change the acidity of the water, which we'd be doing and and have done, it really affects how well that chemical process runs. So that's a really good way that science is feeding into conservation at the moment, because we're able to look at what are the causes maybe of mussel or oyster decline. And we think one of the things is ocean acidification, that it's affecting their capability of of making these shells. Uh, So it's, it's things like that that maybe aren't obvious actually could be having a huge impact because once you start reducing the populations or the the health of the populations of the, all these shelled species a lot of our other species rely on those as food sources as well so you start to have knock-on effects up the food chain i think the other probably really big thing we're doing is um affecting the species on the shore through invasive species so again mm-hmm. this is something we hear a lot about in the terrestrial environment in the intertidal you know Partly the temperature changes causes rain shifts in species, but also there are invasive species we're starting to see on our shores. And some of them we're probably bringing directly. So ships that pick up ballast water in one place and then release ballast water in another place quite often just drop in lots of little tiny species from that water and then they can find a home here. So one of the examples is a type of seaweed that exists in Japan. Um, And it's an amazing species. It's the kind of thing that you just break off a little bit and that little bit just goes to the water column and then it sticks on and grows a whole new one. So that's, I mean, that's mind boggling, the capacity to do that. That means if you pick up some in Japan and then you release ballast water, in this case, the south of England, then that species has gone, hey, something that's stick, let's go for it. Um, and over the past kind of 20, 30 years, that's stuck and grown and bred and spread. And now we see it across most of the coast of the UK. Um, so it's maybe not the biggest problem you know it's not like you hear about cane toads in australia or some of these things that are devastating rats on islands a devastating species but it is changing our shores um, and we can expect more of these kind of things to happen and i think that's really interesting picking up on that of that range shift and people don't necessarily realize how big these range shifts are but yeah we could definitely that is a, we say it a lot in this podcast like that's definitely an episode that we could have of just <laughs> rain shifts in general and how that is impacting yeah, yeah. like you said either bringing invasive species or just species moving north and then squeezing everything at the top because once you get to the polar there's nowhere else to go so yeah that that's a whole thing in itself but okay so diving even deeper into your work Hannah we've picked up on the phrase citizen science a few times and for our listeners if you think back to season one, if you've listened to season one, there is a seaweed episode on the big seaweed search. There is our cephalopods is in science project episode with cephalopods. So just to give for this episode, a all encompassing, what is citizen science? Because we keep saying it, but we actually have yet to really pick back up on what that is. Yeah, I think uh, citizen science is one of those super broad churches that a lot of people have a different definition of. Um, and in fact, there are some really big arguments happening at the moment about this term and and what fits into it. For me, I guess citizen science is any kind of scientific research where non-professionals or the public can participate and contribute Mm. meaningfully. Um, So that can look super different. It can be people doing bird observations or iNaturalist or iSpot. You mentioned having apps on your phone and feeding into that kind of project to people that see a problem i think uh, america has had some amazing examples of this some people that have identified that maybe there's water pollution or air pollution and have right from the beginning identified it 
taken observations, they've done the analysis, they've found the answer, and they've taken ownership of the entire scientific project. So lots of different ways citizen science can work, but um, I think mainly it's, it's that connection between science and the wider public. I think that was an excellent description and overview of what citizen science is, so thank you for that. Um, so you were part of the Capturing Our Coast project, am I correct? Mm-hmm. Can you give us a nice overview of that as well? Yeah, so um, Capturing Our Coast was a, I think, super cool citizen science mm-hmm. project um, that was we started a few years ago, uh, and it was UK-wide, and it was something that basically engaged people with intertidal ecology, with rocky shore ecology. And the idea behind it was training loads of volunteers, loads of citizen scientists across the whole of the UK to be able to identify species on the rocky shore. Everyone would submit their results and their sightings and their their, um, their field work. And then we pull it all together to ultimate this huge UK-wide data set, which enable us to answer some kind of big questions because everyone was using the same method and everyone was kind of putting in the, the, the effort across the whole um, part of the coastline, a lot of which has never really been studied before. So we managed to build this amazing data set of rocky shore species and look at some some quite cool scientific questions. Just picking up on that, Hannah, what were the key research questions of CoCoast? Yeah, so there were quite a few going on there. It was a big project, so lots of different things happening. Um, so we had some experiments that we were running across different parts of the UK. So one of them was about uh, removing seaweed species from parts of the shore. And then we'd watch how quickly that recovered. So kind of looking mm-hmm. at succession on the seashore and how that differed between different parts of the UK. An important part of that was looking at, I guess, how quickly our shores are going to bounce back from these, uh, I use the term perturbation, that's quite a science word, but but these these kind of big extreme events. That's related to the things we're expecting to see from climate change. So these more extreme storms that are tearing off seaweeds and how well will our rocky shore species recover. Um, but there are lots of other things as well. So one of the things that we got a lot of people engaged with was looking for lugworm sperm on sandy shores, which is, I had the most fun working with people on this one um, because it turns out very few people knew about it, me included. Um, but lugworms are those kind of worms that live buried in sandy shores and you see the worm cast on the surface. And there's the current scientific opinion is that um, because if you are a single worm in a single burrow, it's quite difficult to uh, go worm dating with worms <laughs> on different burrows. It's not like a bar you all meet in. So in order to breed, they have to find a way to connect. And uh, the idea is that sometime in kind of November, there's a particular moon and tide cycle that they all respond to. And on that particular day and that particular night, a lot of the worms will basically eject sperm onto the surface of the beach. And then the tide will take it and wash it into the other burrows and the other ones just kind of catch it and use it to breed. Um, which means that on a particular night in November, it's like, a, it's like a, I'm not sure, a horror story or a love story. It's hard to tell. Uh, you can wander onto a beach um, and then you'll just see puddles of sperm everywhere. It's a gross um, lugworm party is what it is. It's Yeah, I mean, there's there's another um, possible kind of script for if you were looking to go into films or, you know, <laughs> I think that's a, it's a, it's, it's definite winner. Look out for a Disney short on lugworms. I'm sure they'll make right. it very, very cute. And I Rocky would Shore like gone. a credit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. I had no idea that's how lugworms worked. I knew what they were, but I didn't realise that's how they... Predominantly mm-hmm. briefly. They've kept it very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, they're spending a lot of time in burrows. We can't talk to them that easily. Okay. <laughs> so that sounds amazing that you're able to do research as well as training and get all these citizen scientists involved in this project. What were some of the key outputs? Did you answer any of these questions? Yeah. I mean, I, for me, citizen science, unless you're doing unless you're getting science outputs from it, it's not citizen science, it's just nice learning, um, which is great for its own sake, but I think for it to be meaningful citizen science, you have to have outputs. Um, from the Cocos project, there have been outputs. Some of them are still ongoing because that's the nature of science, I guess. Uh, one of the, the papers that we published, I think last year, was um, looking at very large scale patterns. So this is from the data that all our citizen scientists across the coastline put in. And it was... I think quite difficult for us to analyse because that's a lot of input from a lot of different bits of coast mm-hmm. and a lot of variables happening. But we were trying to answer a question about um, 
uh, a relationship between population density and population distribution. So that's very big terms. What essentially means mm. is that for a particular species, and Rocky Shore are a great example for this, um, they all have different ranges. And we talked earlier about kind of range shifts related to temperature. So they all have mm. thermal ranges, mainly temperatures they like to live in. Like me, I like to live in Scotland. I get very sad in Greece because it's too hot for me. Um, <laughs> and I also would get super sad in Antarctica because it's too cold. So I, you know, I have a quite a limited range where I'm a happy person. Um, and that's the same for most intertidal species. So they will, you know, like to be, say, in the south coast of England. Um, they will start to get pretty unhappy in the north coast of Scotland. And if they go down to the meds, they'll get unhappy as well. So we can imagine that as just this this block in which they're happy to live. And the, there's a kind of ecological theory that um, if you live at either end of that block, only a few of you, like the tough ones of you, are going to want to live there. Most of you are going to live right in the middle of that block. So we get what looks like a little curve distribution that goes really small at either end and really big in the middle. Um, and by using the data, we were able to test that theory and whether it, it holds true, hmm. um, which is, I mean, it's quite a cool ecology theory that, you know, not very applied science, just geeking out about science. Um, but it's also really interesting in terms of the conservation of these species, because if what we call the leading edge, so these, these edges of the range only have a few of them, it it tells us about how they might move in response to climate change and how likely mm -hmm. they are to survive at these edges. So it all kind of ties in as to, to what the conservation of these species might be or what we might need to do or what we might expect to see in the future as all these pressures change. Just thinking about that, Hannah, and you may or may not be able to answer this. Um, yeah. So is there that you know of, and it probably wasn't captured in Cocos, but any studies that have looked at those animals that are really in the centre and compared the traits to those that are on those leading edges to look if, like, is there traits that are allowing them to live there or that will possibly mean that they are actually slightly different because of the fact they've been living there and you've got that speciation going on? Yeah, I mean, that's a brilliant question. Um, and nothing jumps to mind as like a an example study. Mm. Um, but this is exactly the kind of thing that I think that population ecologists really like looking at is what is the trait variation between those in the middle and those at the edge, particularly because um, that it kind of feeds into to the evolution and particularly speciation. So whether or not species can turn into two different species if you separate them out or they start to have different pressures at different points of the range. So it turns into some really cool ecology and evolutionary science. In terms of the rocky shore, I presume people must have looked at it in some species. Um, it's not anything I can think of, but I certainly don't think it's been done on these big scales across multiple species, which I think is where um, where we need to start looking for these answers. Because while studies of single species and single areas are interesting and allow us to look at some of these theories, mm. they're not very responsive to these big scale questions we're looking at now and these big scale pressures that are happening. So this is one of these areas that citizen science is really great to feed into because a lot of our ecological science and looking at these questions in the past has been like one beardy guy with maybe two grad students have gone out <laughs> to the shore and been able to conduct a really intense study. But that's just not cutting it anymore, really. Um, so using citizen science means that we can get, you know, a thousand people of great diversity across the shores looking and feeding in these data. And that allows us to start maybe asking some of these bigger questions. You just done it really nicely at the end there where the citizen science feeds into science not being extrapolated from one or two mm. really big, really important studies, but it, citizen science can ha has the ability to back up what we've already learned with real-time data, which is incredible. I think... It's very easy to say, oh, yeah, I'm involved in citizen science. I do this one small thing. But having that really large picture of it is doing a lot more than you could ever really know. And you've already mentioned that Coco's released that one um, publication. So are Coco's still planning on releasing more? Is it still, is it still working as a project? Is, can people still get involved? Uh, yes, there are more papers coming. Um, it's just one of these slow processes that tends to happen from science. Um, Co-Coast, as it is, isn't continuing. If you were a trained volunteer, you can still continue to submit data. Um, and there are people at the other end that are looking at it, it goes through to the universities. But we're not training any more people to do that. That was kind of a point in time. Um, there are other projects people can get involved with 
that are maybe follow-ons or, or steps from capturing our coast. So you mentioned big seaweed search. That's a great one because that's you know run by the Natural History Museum and um, they're looking at climate change and things like that from from their seaweed data. Uh, there are also we're kind of taking the next step in a lot of ways. Um, so in Scotland we have the Coastal Communities Network that is managed by Nature Scott and that is communities all the way around the coast that have interest in their coastline for lots of different reasons because they like walking or swimming or they have fishing businesses or whatever it might be um, but they are getting together and um, able to try and ask questions with support from scientists and support from other organizations rather than organizations leading it and I think that's where the next stages are uh, being able to build capacity in these communities, be able to provide them with the equipment and the knowledge they need to answer the questions that are relevant to them in their local area. So that's the, yeah, that's like the the evolution of, of citizen science, particularly in coastal areas in Scotland. With those communities, Hannah, obviously you've mentioned the kind of support to get that up and running and so they can start answering their own questions. And I think it's really exciting being based in Scotland and seeing that evolution of this community-based ownership of yeah. looking at the nature around these communities and that they are connected to because that's such a powerful part of learning and engagement is a thing that is on your doorstep if there's people listening and thinking oh that sounds like an interesting project have you got any kind of like a starter for 10 of recommendations of if they live on the coast and wanted to try and kickstart a community project um, or they kind of think there might be one local and they want to try and get in there but they're not too sure how got any recommendations for that yeah so actually I said the coastal communities network is an amazing thing so if you google that they have a website um, and mm. they're very big on so it, it was kind of brought together by nature scott but the the plan is very much that they um take ownership themselves so they've got like a forum where it's peer-to-peer -peer sharing and learning so you know maybe a community on the west coast can talk to a community on the east coast and say we found this or we're doing this and do you want to kind of share which is yeah an amazing thing to, to take on um, and we were involved, along with lots of other people, in supporting Nature Scott on producing a community monitoring handbook. Mm. So that provides some standard techniques for doing things like monitoring subtidally or intertidally, which means that all communities have can have that handbook. You can start to monitor your own environment yourselves. Um, and Nature Scott also provide training on this. So they're doing a great job at just trying to build capacity in different communities. So if you're interested in that, reach out. To, there might be a community near you. You can start a new one. Well up for anyone, uh, you know, getting involved in this. I think it would be fantastic to see more of these coming across. Um, and Scotland in particular is really good at the moment for, particularly for coastal communities, this focus on community ownership, community empowerment, um, bringing things to the area and keeping them in that area and allowing people to make their own decisions. So I think let's, yeah, let's actually capture that momentum. I think that's a lovely point to mention that there is support there. There is, there are handbooks made, there's nature Scott getting behind things. There's probably more support than we could ever quantify. So if anybody is interested in setting up anything at all not just necessarily coast although that's the topic of this season then it's just a case of taking the time having a google asking some questions and talking to the right people or the wrong people you'll figure it out quickly enough um so it's a really nice message to highlight on this episode i think um hannah i did want to ask you mentioned your most recent job is the social environmental systems lecturer at siuc but what is the SRUC and what does your new job involve? Yeah, so SRUC um, is uh, not terribly uh, helpful acronym, I guess, um, but it basically is the, the name of Scotland's Rural College. So it is a um, research education institute that ma is made up of lots of different campuses across Scotland, from those down in Dumfries and Galloway to up in Aberdeen. Um, and it looks at anything to do with I guess the rural environment, economy, society, anything to do with our kind of, uh, yeah, less less urban areas and, and their interest and the science that's exciting around there. Um, and my current job, uh, as you said, is, is socio-environmental systems, which to me sounds like a really big way to say pretty much everything um <laughs> yeah which uh yeah yeah which is it which, which is really cool for me because that that encompasses all my various interests in, in one job title um 
So what I mainly do is I work with our master's students. We have masters that are joint between SIUC and University of Edinburgh that are looking at things like environmental management, environmental protection, dealing with some of these really big questions and wicked problems that are happening at the moment. Um, so I'm trying to work with them and basically give them the tools that they need to go out in the world and yeah, solve it, ideally, would be great, but um, at least make a contribution to things like conservation, climate crisis, biodiversity crisis, and take us all in that right direction. And kind of, I mean, you've already mentioned you wear many, many hats. And I think that's great talking about tools, giving people tools. You can't expect people to do things if they're not supported, engaged and empowered. And I really love that message. Um, But yeah, some of the other hats you wear and one we haven't picked up on is your consultancy. Um, So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, It's called Mercurius. Love that name. Yeah, if you want to go into your consultancy a little bit, we're we're down for that jam. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I guess like a lot of people, um, I have lots of different interests that I pull together in various different ways because I just I find science and engagement and communication all just so exciting. There's lots of different ways to to take part in that. Uh, One of the things I do is I run a small consultancy called Mercurius, as you said, um, and that focuses on providing support for citizen science, for science communication or education. Um, And it was a way for me to bring together some other interests and contacts and and ways to support and and, yeah give people tools and and understanding um so what we do with that i work quite closely with some other colleagues that run consultancies as well there's a lot of us that have a network across scotland particularly but also england and the rest of the world Um, and it's it runs from you know sometimes i could be running events science events uh for people for adults to kind of explore some of the exciting um new research that's coming out or I can be um, working with colleagues in Scottish government to try and explore how communities can get involved with certain aspects of policy that's coming in the future Um, or it can be just providing sometimes I provide seaweed workshops or just take people out on the shore and spend two hours just bombarding them with all my best exciting seaweed chat Um, and it's, it's a bit make or break my seaweed workshops you will love it at the end or you'll never speak about seaweeds again um so yeah it, it's just it's a really cool way for me to be able to provide these our expertise and understanding to some of these really cool projects that are happening across Scotland at the moment um, and and wider in fact and just a I guess a slightly different question how do you find balancing a consultancy with all of your interests as well as a job that sounds like a lot on on one plate yes um I think there's a saying that if you um, do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And then I think there's a meme going around saying, or you'll never have any time off and feel like there's no work or life boundaries. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I'm probably a bit more on that one um, <laughs> in that I love it all, but it kind of takes over and, and is very all encompassing. And I said, I spend a lot of my time outdoors still thinking about citizen science. You know, that's just, uh, I think, the nature of these things. Um, you know, the consultancy work ebbs and flows. Um, and my jobs ebb and flow and my um, time for sleeping ebbs and flows so it's just it's a it's a balance between all these different things but I think like a lot of people working in conservation or climate change or all these different um, areas that my work touches it feels like there's a lot going on at the moment Um, there's a lot of depressing news you know I think a lot of people talking about eco-anxiety and this stress that the the kind of pressure of of the impacts are having Um, But equally, I think there's a lot of positive feedback to that. There's a lot of community projects. There's a lot of policy happening in in the right direction. So um, I guess I'm very privileged to be in the middle of all that, really, being able to um, being able to work in it, being able to respond to it, be able to have a positive response to some of these issues. Um, And yeah, it's very much something that gets me out of bed in the morning. Thank you for that insight there, Hannah, because I think that is something that's really important to touch on is, you know, that you do give yourself to the work, but also, like you said, it's finding that balance and how important that is. And just, I mean, if you have any kind of comment on this in terms of eco-anxiety, because it is something that I think a lot of us in conservation are feeling and a lot of people in general, like we get bombarded on the news about everything that's going on. Is there, you know, a way for you that you sit down and you you kind of care for that eco-anxiety of yourself a little bit? And do you have any, would, would you like to share that? And it's totally fine if you don't. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. Um, I think, yeah, it's something that 
when I started, we talked about conservation and it was like, let's make a nature reserve. And it felt like it was just a work problem you dealt with, you know, it was something you could, mm-hmm. you could just do. It was kind of tractable. Um, and now it's like the world's on fire. <laughs> Everything's on fire. And it's, it's much harder to, to see it as a, <clears throat> yeah, as a small problem that can be dealt with within um, normal means. So uh, I think my, my number one thing for me is switching off the news because I don't need that um, mm-hmm. daily bombardment into my life. I don't, you know, I don't mean to say I'm disconnected from what's happening, but I don't think I need to see that minute by minute kind of um, mm. bad, bad impact. Um, a part of it for me as well is, is, like I said before, getting outside. So while I'm upset about environmental degradation, it really helps to actually go outside and see that there is still an environment there and that you can be in it and that you can have that kind of, I should call it like nature bathing. That's maybe not the term I'd use, but you know, I, I think it does, it does help you just to be outside and get a perspective on what it do, what you're doing and why. Um, and for me, probably not for a lot of people, but definitely for me, things like Twitter, for example, are great. I know a lot of people struggle with Twitter because it's, it can be a nightmare um, of trolls and, and bad press, but my Twitter is like a super positive environment. I, you know, follow, I guess people like you guys, I follow, you know, community groups and scientists and people that share their fears and worries, but also their positivity and their humor and their energy. And it, it kind of gives me yeah, it gives me perspective that it can't all be going wrong with the world if there are this many cool people that I get to just interact with and hear what's happening. So, yeah, I think very much looking at the positive sides gets you through the day. Otherwise, mm. yeah, it's very easy to just um, feel overwhelmed by everything. And I think you used a wonderful word there. It's that having that perspective. It's not being overly positive and thinking that these things aren't happening. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's all going to be fine. It is having the wider perspective that there are things that we can do whilst looking after ourselves and being present and enjoying what we do have. And it is it is a balancing act and it does take yeah. a while to get to. I'm still perfecting what being <laughs> like mindful and being happy and figuring out how to balance all of this together is. And I'm sure I'm sure you are as well, Anna. Um, but yeah, I think that's a beautiful note to end on because we have touched on everything I think we wanted to chat about, unless there is anything else you would like to mention. Hmm, good question. Um, no, I don't think so, actually. Um, although maybe I did think earlier that maybe I was a bit, uh, maybe I was a bit down on ecological science in a way that I didn't mean to be. Um, I think, you know, scientists and ecologists are, um, generally amazing people that care about the environment and they're doing it because they want to answer these questions and a lot of ecology these days is fantastic particularly in terms of the uh, analysis we're able to do like our understanding of the environment and the changes are, are so much bigger than they were before I guess the, the kind of converse of that is while our tools and our computational capacity have got much bigger our numbers in terms of getting outside haven't mm-hmm. um, and so that's where citizen science, I think, can really play a role, as I was saying. But I really see um, citizen science ideally as a partnership between people that have these scientific tools and people that have the interest or the, um, you know, the, the drive to participate in that as well. I think it can all work together really well. And I mm. think increasingly both communities are, are moving towards that. Like in science in the past did have a slight element of, you know, I'm in my ivory tower and don't touch me. Whereas now, particularly all the young scientists I see are amazing at engaging with people, at bringing their expertise, at communicating that, at, at figuring out where they need to work. So I think, yeah, that kind of people and science partnership is is going to be amazing, is amazing and it will continue to be amazing going forward. Um, so, yeah, maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't you know, diss my entire community um, in that way. But yeah, I, I think there is there's a lot of exciting things that are happening. Just just when people talk more and just people, you know, understand that everyone has a different skill set, which is increasingly necessary, that everyone brings a different skill set, but we can work together really effectively. Um, no, I don't think you've dissed anyone because I mean, I'm okay. in that community <laughs> too. Um, but it's it's highlighting the, as individuals, there is so only so much you can do right. because you are an individual. If you're in research as one person, you are not 
an octopus. <laughs> you don't have eight <laughs> arms to do everything. Whereas this network of citizen scientists, they are an octopus, <laughs> for want of better phrasing, where it does just give you that power on the ground. And that is something that will always be limiting, is hands on the ground to actually do stuff. So it's just it's another way to get things done and that can work very, very well in collaboration. So you haven't dissed anyone. It's just making the point that, you know, there is limitations to the amount one person or one group can do. Whereas when you have loads of people enthused, engaged, empowered with the right tools, yeah, let them out there. And that is how we make change happen and how we move through things. Um, so on that note, Lex, is there anything else you want to add? I was just going to take it one step further back and say, you guys are talking about the people that are already knowledgeable and enthused and those that do have the drive to want to change things. The thing that citizen science and public engagement also involves is educating people. And we've said mm -hmm. it before on this podcast, Hannah, which is you can't care about what you don't know about. So no. you're both absolutely right in the fact that we need the scientists, we need the research, we need the knowledge, but it is getting it out there that is also just as vital. So I think we're all singing from the same hymn sheet and just adding to each other's um, <laughs> pros list, to be fair. So I think we're, we're all converts, um, which is why we have this podcast. Um, but yeah, no, I am absolutely, I think this episode has been fabulous. Thank you so yeah. much for your time, Hannah. You have been a wonderful guest and your answers have been incredible as well as partially <laughs> hilarious when we've actually been joking about things, which is always lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of your experiences with us today and chatting to us. Thank you for our listeners to listening as always and have a wild day. Bye, Bye guys. Thank you for listening today. As always, we have been wild about conservation and you have been awesome. Please do leave us a review. We would really appreciate it and we read each and every one. To keep exploring with us, drop us an email or find us on our socials. We're on both Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in our description and the show notes. If you enjoy our show and want to support us, we're also on Patreon. Just £1 a month, that's 25p an episode, will cover our creation costs. And anything above that, we just donate it to charity. Thank you to those of you who are already helping us to keep creating. Our charity for this season is Seafall. This is a UK-based charity helping more people to reconnect to the ocean and waterways for the benefit of their mental health and to nurture stewardship of our blue spaces. The word seafall is derived from being mindful of the sea, mindful of its importance, of the way it feels to be there, and of what we can do to help preserve and protect it. We chose this charity as we strongly support their mission and goals. Check out the support section on our website to find out more. Don't forget to look out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If we aren't there, let us know. And don't forget, step outside and get wild about conservation. Bye. How do you get wild? Watching wildlife documentaries. Wildflower painting. Diving. Wild swimming. Ocean watching. Rock climbing. Bird watching. Listening to podcasts. Hill walks. Visiting a wildlife charity.